Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. This morning we're going to finish Matthew 26 and move into Matthew 27 as we continue through that night that which, uh, Jesus was betrayed. Uh, now we know what's coming. Uh, really, we've known what's coming, not only because we know the story, but we've known what's coming since Matthew chapter 16. As soon as Peter made that great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. From that time on, we're told that Jesus began to prepare his men for the reality of what was coming, that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be handed over, crucified, and raised again on the third day. And now what we're seeing in Matthew's gospel is the reality of those events unfolding. Judas has betrayed him with a kiss. The mob has come to a arrest him. Peter is struck out with the sword there, fleed into the darkness, and now Jesus is on trial before the religious leaders. And that's what we began to look at last week. Only they don't bring him through a proper trial. They don't bring him to the right place. They don't do it at the right time. They're at the house of the high priest at Caiaphas's house in the middle of the night. And nothing about this is legal. Nothing about this is righteous. Nothing about this is truthful. They bring in false witness after false witness who cannot seem to get their testimony consistent. But instead of condemning the false witnesses, they just bring in more. Instead of exonerating Jesus and freeing him, they make him stay there and wait until they have the evidence that they're looking for to get the verdict that they've wanted all along. And yet through all of this, Jesus is silent. And he's not just silent because there's nothing to say to these ridiculous accusations. He's silent because even in his silence, he fulfills prophecy. That like a lamb before his shears, like a sheep led to the slaughter, he wouldn't open his mouth. And that comes from Isaiah. Now finally, in his rage... Caiaphas, the high priest, demands that he answer. He adjures him by the living God, by the strongest oath that he could place him under. He says, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And for the first time in this trial, the truth is spoken, and Jesus says, you've said it. He, he says, I am. I'm exactly who you say that I am, and that's all the information they need. The vote is cast, the verdict is read, and the Son is condemned. And in one of the more brutal, one of the darker displays of depravity, I think, that we see in the gospel. Those men who should have been the shepherds of Israel, those who should have been respected and honored, those who should have had an amount of dignity, at least for the process, they begin to spit on Messiah. They begin to mock him. They blindfold Christ. They beat him and they say, uh, if you're the Christ, prophesy for us. Tell us who hit you. It's a disturbing scene, and yet it's a scene where even then we're reminded that God's plan is unfolding one step at a time, that he has not lost control of any of this. And we're going to see that again today, even as we look at two very different pictures of rejection and remorse. Two pictures of rejecting the Christ with an awful lot of similarities, but that come to two very different endings. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to begin reading in verse 69, but we'll move all the way up through Matthew 27, verse 10, as our text today. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 69, this is what God's word says. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, uh, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And then he went out to the entrance, and another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. 
Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Let's pray. Lord, in this passage and in the next, we see two men who should have known better. We see Peter and Judas, firsthand experience with the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus Christ, reject the Son. And Lord, as easy it is for us to leave it there, to condemn them, how easily we reject the Son. Sometimes with our words and actions, sometimes with our lack of words and our inaction. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded not only of our great sin, but of your great grace. The fact that your mercy is such that it covers even the most wretched sins of your people. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things, wonderful true things that you have given us. And, and the other disciples in that upper room that they had prepared, they go through the Passover celebration. Judas is dismissed in the middle of that, and the other disciples don't really understand where he's gone. Jesus, of course, knows. But then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. We have that first communion celebration. Uh, they sing a hymn, and then they go out toward the Mount of Olives. And it's there on the Mount of Olives as they approach the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus leaves eight disciples and brings three more closer along with him, Peter and James and John. And he says, come a little farther and then wait here. Watch and pray while I go over there and I commune with my Father. And we know that they fall asleep, but after uh, several hours, likely, Jesus comes and wakes them up and the mob is approaching. And we know that as the mob comes to arrest Jesus, uh, Peter kind of leaps into action. He takes the sword. He cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest and he's corrected by Jesus. And when Jesus is taken into custody, Peter and the rest of the disciples flee into the darkness. But last week we saw that Peter didn't get far. Verse 58 tells us that Peter was following at a distance. We know that he came up to the gate. Uh, We know from the other gospel accounts that Peter actually couldn't get into the courtyard of the high priest until another disciple, presumably John, kind of spoke to the gatekeeper because he was known there and allowed Peter to come in. But Peter is now in the courtyard. The trial is being held in the house. Peter is very close outside warming himself by the fire there. Uh, And that's kind of physically how he prepared to be there. But more importantly than that, I think we need to be reminded of how Peter has been spiritually prepared for this, or really Peter's lack of spiritual preparation for this. Because we rewind a little bit, and we go back to that upper room, and at some point earlier on in this evening, we know that the disciples were arguing. And they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And during that argument, we do not have the gospel accounts say, except for Peter, who was saying, guys, come on, this isn't appropriate. Every indication is that he is fully invested in that argument. And to that argument, Jesus says, you are all going to fall away. You're worried about who's the greatest. At one point tonight, you are all going to fall away. And what does Peter say? Not me. Maybe all these guys, I can see all of them falling away, but not me. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, not only are you going to fall away like the rest, but before the rooster crows, before the new day dawns, you are going to deny me three times. And what is Peter's response? You're wrong. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Well, Jesus brings them out toward the garden, and Peter and James and John are left there a little further than the others. And what does he tell them to do? Watch and pray. 
Why? Because the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. You, Peter, are about to be sifted. Satan has demanded permission to shake you like wheat, to see what is there of substance, and you are not prepared. You need to watch and you need to pray. You need a strength that is not yours. And what do we see, Peter, and the other disciples, to be fair, do? They fall asleep. See, Peter hasn't listened. Peter's not prepared for what's going to come. What is going to come that we look at now is a part of that sifting, a part of that shaking, a part of that testing that is taking place. There's going to be a tension here, a contrast that sometimes we miss. And part of that is because of how we go through this. It's in bits and pieces and from one week to the next. But you read that trial of Jesus and now you read what is essentially a trial of Peter here and you see some great tension between the two. And it started before this. Peter has utterly failed to prepare, but Jesus has prepared. Jesus has been in prayer. Jesus has determined that no matter what the will of the Father is, he will follow it obediently. And we see that Peter simply isn't in that same place. And as the testing starts, we we move from Peter's preparation, and now we see his interrogation, the questioning that comes up to that. Look at the rest of verse 69. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Peter's outside in the darkness, he's huddled around that fire, and you have to understand again that these things are happening at the same time. Jesus is inside being accused by the council, and now Peter's outside and he's going to face his own accusations, (laughs) and in the glow of the firelight, the first one comes from a servant girl. And that's the first contrast that we should see. Inside, Jesus is being interrogated and accused by the most powerful men in the country. No, they were not Rome. They did not have all of the authority to do whatever they wanted to do. But to the Jewish mind, these were the elite. These were the men who determined what was lawful and what was unlawful. These were the men who determined what was pure and impure, holy and unholy. These were the men who, when they gathered together, were expected to determine God's will for the Jewish people. There is no higher court, again, from a Jewish perspective, that Jesus could have been accused by than what he is facing in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And here's Peter. And he's confronted by a servant girl, a slave, someone who is owned by another. And not just a slave, but a slave girl. And in that culture, you have to understand that this servant girl, this slave girl, wouldn't have even been seen to be fit to be a witness in that trial that was going on in the next room. And we don't know how she knew what she knew about Peter. Maybe she saw him in the temple as she was there with the high priest. Maybe she saw him walking through the streets with Jesus. But she makes the most broad connection possible. We don't even know if there's any accusing nature in what she says. She simply says that you were one of the ones with Jesus. You were with Jesus the Galilean. And to the most broad statement by the most unauthoritative, unassuming source possible, what does Peter say? Look at verse 70. But he denied it before them all. There's obviously a little crowd around there, and Peter's going to make sure that they hear his side of the story. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Denial number one, and how far we've come already from verse 35. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Not that many hours ago that he proclaimed that. And even his denial rings really hollow, doesn't it? He doesn't even specifically address it. Hey, weren't you with Jesus the Galilean? And what does he say? I don't even know what you're talking about. This is how a child denies things. You see the child there with the crumbs on their collar, with the chocolate chips smeared on their face. 
Did you eat the cookie? I don't know what you're talking about. Never heard of a cookie. Sounds good. We should try one sometime. What do you think? I don't even know what you're talking about. And he should have probably either gotten out of there at that point or figured out something different, but he doesn't want it to happen again, so he goes out to the entrance. He, he moves away from the fire where there's at least some glow, and he moves out to the entrance out by the porch where it likely would have been maybe a little darker. Maybe there's some more anonymity there. And another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you put the gospel accounts together, and you begin to see that the attention is actually building. Peter's moved away from the fire, but the attention has followed him. And now somebody else sees him and says, uh, you not only were with him, uh, but you're one of them. And what does Peter do? Now that the, accuser, the accusations are escalating, so is his denial. Verse 72 and he again denied it, this time with an oath. I do not know the man. I promise, I swear to it, that I don't know him. And again, see the contrast. Jesus is inside, accused by the powerful. Peter is outside, accused by the lowly. Jesus is faced with the false accusation from false witnesses. Peter is faced with absolutely true accusations by people who were speaking the truth. And in the face of lies, Jesus stays silent. In the face of the truth, Peter places himself under oath, and he lies. See the tension that the gospel writers are building into here? Just the stark contrast that you see now between Jesus and Peter when they're placed before the fire, when they're heated up, as it were. So if the first recognition caught him off guard, this second one didn't. There's no accident here. He is now intentionally denying Jesus Christ. And now we move on to the final denial in verse 73. After a little while, Luke's gospel tells us that it was about an hour. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Now it's not just one person. Now it's not just a servant girl. Now whatever has happened over this last hour, Peter has not been able to escape, escape the attention. And now the murmurs have started. Now the whispers. Now the rumors. They're looking for witnesses inside. And here outside, maybe we have one that was even with him. Not even with him, but maybe one who is one of his disciples. And now they say, certainly you're with him. Your accent betrays you. We know who you are. We know where you're from. Every time you open your mouth, you give it away. We can tell where people are from by where they talk. Even within the same country, even within the United States, we have areas and regions where accents give you away. Words and phrases. It doesn't take long when somebody starts using y'all to figure out where they're from. New York and New Jersey. I'm walking here and you know where they're from. Even in California where we don't think we have an accent. I have a feeling that every dude and every bro kind of gives us away. <laughs> now, Israel is significantly smaller, but even there, there's regions that have different dialects. This is Jerusalem. Uh, this is the big city. Peter's a country boy. He's from the north in Galilee. And they say, listen here, hillbilly, every time you open your mouth, we know where you're from. And guess what? If you're from Galilee and he's from Galilee, odds are really good that you know each other, and if you're here, that you're here together. 
It gets even more specific than that. John chapter 18, verse 26 says this, One of them, one of the slaves of the high priest, who was related to the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with them? Well, that's a problem. Because now we have someone who was in the garden who says, I saw you there. You cut off cousin Malchus's ear. Not only do we know where you're from, not only do we know who you're with, but now, Peter, they know what you did. And you would think that there's nowhere to go from that, but Peter does what many of us do when we are caught in a lie, and that is he doubles down and he digs his heels in. Look at verse 74. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Now Matthew's not just talking about vulgar language, although there might have been some of that involved. When he's talking about swearing, it's an I swear to the name of God. When he's talking about a curse, may God curse me if I am lying. Now that's sobering, isn't it? I place myself under God's judgment and say that I do not know the man. And again, here's the great contrast. Peter places himself under an oath to the very name of God to preserve a lie so that maybe he can preserve his life. Jesus is inside, and what does Caiaphas say? I adjure you by the living God. I place you under oath to the living God so that he can speak the truth that will certainly take his life. You see the contrast between Peter and between Jesus Christ. And that moves us from the interrogation to the condemnation. Peter's guilt is abundantly clear by this point. Look at the second half of verse 74. And immediately the rooster crowed. And this is one of the single most dramatic moments in the gospel accounts. Peter's denial, and you know that it's getting loud at this point. I swear, I swear by God, may God curse me if I am lying. I do not know the man. And before his voice finishes echoing off of the walls of the high priest's house, the rooster crows and the new day dawns. There's even more to it than that. Luke chapter 22, verse 60. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed, just, just like in Matthew. But in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, 61, it says, And then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. As the words leave Peter's lips, as the rooster is crowing, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Can you feel the weight of that moment? Either Jesus turns and sees him from the house, or I think more likely, given the timing and what is moving from here to there, Jesus is likely being led out of the courtyard toward where they are going to bring him for the next phase. And in that moment, his eyes meet Peter's. And what did Peter see? The eyes of someone who had done nothing but love him. The eyes of someone who had been nothing but patient with him. Who had been nothing but encouraging with him, correcting him when needed. A face that was likely bruised now from the beating. Spit in his hair and in his beard. 
And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And as he meets his eye, it all floods back into his mind. It breaks his heart. And he went out and he wept bitterly. A broken Peter now runs into the night for the last time. By the way, in Matthew's Gospel, that is the last you hear specifically mentioned of Peter. That's pointed. And yet, Jesus knew, didn't he? That's a difficult passage to read. Difficult because in some sense we feel for Peter, we feel for his weakness, we feel for his failure. In a greater sense, it's not right that Jesus should be faced with that from someone that he loved. But as we move into Matthew 27, now we're going to see another account of failure and rejection. And while the first couple of verses kind of move us forward in the narrative that deals with the trial, the bulk of the opening of chapter 27 through verse 10 today that we're going to look at deals with the failure of Judas. So let's open that up and look at Judas's failure now and look quickly at verse 1 and 2 that talk about the procedure that's happening. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And that sounds odd because really we know that that's already happened. But what they're doing here is that in their hypocrisy, they're trying to put the thinnest veneer of legality to this whole thing. Remember, uh, under Jewish custom, Jewish tradition, Jewish law, you couldn't hold trials at night wasn't right you couldn't hold trials in the house of the high priest that wasn't right so they move it according to luke's gospel and as you put them together kind of back to the council chambers so that at least it looks right now they have a vote in the right place and the sun is just starting to come up so the new day has started so it's at least at the right time now it's in daylight but understand it doesn't negate anything that's happened in chapter 26 this is still hypocritical this is still utterly sinful and wicked but they are trying to at least keep up appearances here And the verdict's upheld, Jesus is condemned, but now there's a problem from there. And they want him dead, they don't have the authority to put him to death. Uh, The Roman Roman leaders allow them a great deal of religious autonomy uh, to keep the peace. But the Jews don't have the ability to put anyone to death. They don't have the authority to carry out a capital punishment. To that, they must go to Rome and to a man named Pilate. So, verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. They know what they want, but now they have to make their case before someone who can actually make it happen. And we've heard the name Pilate a number of times. Uh, We're a little bit familiar with him. We'll spend more time going into who he is and uh, the length of his authority and what that looked like uh, in the coming weeks. But for now, we just need to understand that this is moving forward from the Jewish phase now to kind of the Gentile phase of the trial. And we say that's great. It's progressing. But again, it's powerful to be reminded that even the various stages of the trial were foreseen by God. In Matthew 20, as they're getting ready to go into Jerusalem for that Passion Week, Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen. Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over, so the agent, somebody is going to hand him over, and we saw that with Judas, to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. We saw that in Matthew chapter 26. And in verse 19, he says, And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify. That handing over to the Gentiles is what we see now. Oh, and by the way, on the third day, he will be raised up. We can't forget that Jesus not only knows the end, he knows every single step of this process all the way to the cross. And in contrast with the obedience of Christ, now as we move into the rest of our passage today, what we see is the terrible price 
that Judas is going to pay for his rejection and his failure. Verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, and that's all that he's given now, that's his title, not one of the twelve, now he's known as the agent, the one who is handing over the Messiah to be killed. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Now Judas kind of sees the end of his plans being worked out. Jesus is condemned. It's official. It was official the night before. Now it's really official. He's going to die for the claims that he's made. Now Judas wasn't ignorant. He knew that that's what they wanted. He knew that that's what they were looking for from the very beginning, but there's a difference between I know what they're going to do and now seeing it played out. If you've ever had a great plot, something that you are going to do maybe to your siblings, uh, it's different in the mind than when you actually see it carried out. Uh, and as Judas sees this, he, it says he changed his mind. Some older versions uh, have the word repent there, and that's kind of unfortunate because it's not the same word as repent when we think of it in terms of salvation. That means a change of mind and heart and direction. This speaks of a change of mind. He thought differently about the matter. What once seemed good and profitable now seems sordid and a little bit ugly to him. And he realized he's made, made a terrible mistake. And in his guilt, look at what he says. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now that's a big deal. Because now the one who has accused Christ is testifying of his innocence. We saw that during that overnight trial, they couldn't find anything to bring against him because we know that he is totally innocent. But now we have the very one who has accused him, the very one who's responsible for handing him over, testify to his innocence. Now that should have stopped the process. Again, according to their legal practices, that should have caused the whole thing to stop and the trial to be reconvened and for them to examine all of this new information that they have. But not only is it a testimony to Christ's innocence, but it's a testimony to Judas's guilt. Deuteronomy 27 condemns someone who takes a bribe, who takes money to bring guilt on the innocent. So the law condemns Judas. His conscience now condemns Judas. But look at what the religious leaders say. The rest of verse 4. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Well, the galling thing is it should have meant something to them. If they were interested in upholding the law, for them to hear that the accuser says he's innocent, it really should have meant something to them. Again, it should have been a shock and a pause to that whole process. But they kind of wash their hands of it, and they say, see to it yourself. And in reality, that only adds to their guilt as well. And what you see, you come away from this, and you realize that no one is innocent. If the chapters 26 and 27 show anything, it is that no one in this is innocent. The council is not innocent, no matter how they try to wash their hands of this. Judas is not innocent, no matter how he feels bad about what has happened. Pilate is not innocent, although he too will try to wash his hands of what happens. Peter, for all the pressure and all the grief, is not innocent in that courtyard as he denies Christ. And in the middle of all of this sin that surrounds this, the purity and the obedience and the holiness of Jesus Christ just shines so much brighter in the middle of all this darkness. Well, how does Judas respond to that? Verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, 
he departed and he went and hanged himself. Council won't take back the money. They've washed their hands of Judas and his fate. So he leaves and he can't think of anything else to do. So he takes and he throws the money into the temple. And the word there is not just the temple, kind of the surrounding area, not those courtyards after courtyards that we saw. It's the word that means kind of the temple sanctuary itself, that place that would have been reserved for only the priests. So either he came up as far as he could go to the court of the men of Israel and threw it into the sanctuary area there, or he threw it over one of the walls where he could get close. Either way, can you, can you imagine this picture? This is a feast day. This is a busy time in and around the temple. And you have Judas obviously distraught, carrying 30 pieces of silver running and not putting it in the normal offering bins where it would go, but throwing it into the sanctuary of the priests and then running off. And in his shame and in his guilt, he hangs himself. He knows that there's no way to undo what he set into motion. And so he takes his own life. That is not meant to bring us to a place of pity for Judas. Again, sometimes there's a push to kind of make him a sympathetic figure, a pawn in all of this, and he is not. Was he used by Satan? Absolutely. That's made clear in the gospel accounts. Was he used by the religious leaders? Absolutely. Does God understand and has woven this into his plan of redemption from before time began? Absolutely. But Judas does exactly what his sinful heart wants. Judas knows exactly who it is that he's betraying. Jesus said in the upper room, it would have been better if that man, the one handing him over, had not been born. There's no redemption arc at the end of this story. That is a sobering reminder. It is a terrible thing to reject the Messiah, to reject the Son. But even in his rejection, we see the plan and the purpose and the knowledge of God. But now the priests have some money that they have to deal with. They take that money that they ostensibly collect out of the sanctuary there in verse 6. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful for us to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. That statement should grate on us. There is a, an irony in that that they recognize that it would be improper to put that money into the general treasury because it's what they call blood money. They see this as improperly gotten wealth. They recognize that this money was the price of a man's life. They do not see it as a righteous reward given to someone for faithful information that upheld the holiness and the glory of God and the honor of Israel. This was blood money. This was given so that someone would be put to death. Even they recognized that Jesus was handed over in a sinful way. The utter and disgusting hypocrisy is that they're not willing to overlook a minor thing of the law so long as they accomplish the greater sin that they're after. They'll kill the innocent Christ. They'll murder the Son of God, but they won't put the wrong kind of money into the temple treasury. This is going to someone's home and murdering them, but then making sure you follow the speed limits on your way out of town. Do you see 
just the incongruency, the way that those two things do not fit. And yet somehow in their hearts, they are still justifying their own holiness. They're still somehow upholding their own righteousness because they refuse to do the wrong thing with the money. So they can't put it in the treasury, but they have to do something with it. So verse 7, they took counsel and they, brought, they bought with them the potter's field. That's a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. They find an acceptable use for the money. They'll buy this field. And they'll use it as a place to bury strangers, outcasts, visitors, people that weren't part of the covenant people of Israel. And that field, even up to the point in Matthew's writing, is known as the field of blood. And you see that all Judas got for his 30 pieces of silver was a place to die. And as soon as he died, he entered into the perfect judgment of an eternal God where he would bear the weight of that rejection for eternity. But no part of this is just historical trivia or by accident. Uh, Like he's done all the way through the gospel and even more frequently as the cross gets closer, Matthew is going to tie this to fulfillment. There's a promise here that we're meant to see. They took the 30 pieces of silver. They buy the potter's field. And verse 9, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now there's a little bit of difficulty there because you're going to go in your Bibles and you're going to search for that in Jeremiah and you're not going to find it. And then you're going to search for the other prophets and you're not going to find it exactly there either. And what you're going to see is that this is a combination of Zechariah and Jeremiah. Zechariah 11 talks about 30 pieces of silver. It talks about a potter in the house of the Lord. Jeremiah 18 and 19 and even Jeremiah 32 refer to a potter and a field. And we're wondering, did Matthew kind of confuse what was going on here? Did he not remember the reference? Well, we have to remember that Matthew is writing to a people who understood the prophets. Matthew is writing, this is a very Jewish gospel written for people with a background in the Jewish scriptures. It's why he brings up so many of those fulfillment things. And they have what we don't, and that's typically kind of a comprehensive understanding of who the prophets are and what they wrote. Matthew's not giving a systematic quotation, this is from Jeremiah, this portion, and this is from Zechariah. He's saying, this is exactly what the prophets talked about. Jeremiah, who was a major writing prophet, Zechariah, who was considered a minor prophet, folded into that. They wrote about even this, even about silver and potters and fields. And if you look at Zechariah and Jeremiah, and as you look at those chapters that they draw these images from, do you know what you see? You see the reality that the people of Israel devalued God. They held him to be in little esteem. They took his covenant and his promises and they rejected them. And God promises that that brings further judgment. You know what else you see as you work your way through those prophetic passages? God's faithfulness to his people even when they are faithless. God's promise to judge sin and to judge it fully and rightly. And God's promise to restore a people for himself. See, we know the end of the story. We know how bad things look, but most of us have been through an Easter sermon or two, and we know that Sunday is coming, and so we kind of 
brush over this or make light of it, don't forget that this is dark. This good Friday morning is a dark morning. Peter, the rock, has run weeping into the darkness after denying the Messiah. Judas has betrayed the Son of God, his friend and his teacher, for nothing more than a few pieces of silver. The religious leaders of Israel, the ones who are supposed to shepherd and guide the people, are so corrupt that they'll kill the Messiah, but they won't put blood money in the treasury. But God is not silent. Through all the darkness and all the chaos and all the sin here, we're reminded that God is not sitting in heaven appalled at the way things have turned out, wondering how he is going to rescue and restore this situation. Redemption is promised. God is faithful, and the path and the plan are set. And so even as Matthew brings in Jeremiah and the prophetic promises in general at the end here, he is reminding us that all of this must happen in order that what the prophets wrote might take place. But we're left with kind of a probing question, and that's what's the difference? What's the difference between these two stories? Because they are very much alike. It's two narratives of rejection and remorse. It's two pictures of failure and sorrow that have a lot in common. Two men, both disciples of Jesus. Two men who had both walked with him, ate with him, heard him teach, seen his power firsthand. Two men who were both told they were going to reject Christ. In the upper room, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Surely it's not I. Surely it's not I. Surely it's not I. Judas says, it's not I. And Jesus says, you've said it yourself. Later on, he'll say, what you do, do quickly. Go. Peter, not only will you deny me, not only will you abandon me, but you'll deny that you even know me. Both men end up failing exactly as Jesus said. Both men obviously display sorrow, a, a recognition that what had happened was wrong. But these two stories end very differently. It would have been better if Judas had never been born. That's what Jesus said. His sorrow, his tears, his regret bring him to ending his own life and immediately being ushered into the eternal judgment of God. But Peter, rejecting Christ, weeping in the darkness, isn't the end of his story. But we could read John 21, where we see him restored on that seashore. We could read Acts chapter 2, and we see Peter preach one of the great, passionate, bold gospel sermons in all of recorded history. We could read Acts 4 and Acts 5, and you see Peter willing to suffer and suffer joyfully beatings and imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. What happened? Why do those stories end so very differently? And the reality is that for the disciple, for the true follower of Christ, our failure is never the final word. What did Jesus say to Peter? 
Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But what? But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed so that your faith will not be a final failure. I know that after you have failed, you will turn back. And I've designed purpose for that so that you will strengthen your brothers. It's because Jesus prays and intercedes for those who are his. You read through that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. That place where Jesus prays, not only for the ones in that room, but for all that the Father would give him. And one of the parts of that prayer is, let them be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Do you know why believers will eventually see the glory of God? Because Christ asked for it, because the Father promised it. That's why we read 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. This great salvation hope that we have is never wrapped up in us. It doesn't start with our goodness. It doesn't start with our open-mindedness. It doesn't start with our education. It doesn't start with our righteousness. It doesn't even start with our willingness. It starts with God who has given us this great salvation, this living hope. And it's not kept by our power. It's not kept by our obedience. It's not kept by our willingness. And thank God. What does he say it's kept by? He says it's kept, it's reserved, it's guarded by the power of God. Salvation accomplished by the power of God and salvation kept by the power of God. For a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter got that. I I don't know if, as he's writing 1 Peter to those scattered precious believers, I don't know whether Peter's writing about a salvation that's kept by the power of God if he's reflecting on that night in the garden, but it sure is powerful for us to think of those two things, isn't it? Because if it's up to Peter, the rejection and weeping is the final word. But because it's hinging on Christ and his faithfulness, it's a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, and it's a living hope. Why him? Why us? Same reason. Because we're called and kept by the power of God. A few things for us to think about this morning. First of all, strength and weakness. You and I tend to overestimate and underestimate those two things. I tend to overestimate my strength and underestimate my weakness. Peter did the same thing, and we see what happened. Uh, So often, we enter into trials and temptations without having done the most basic preparations that God has outlined. How do we prepare? Well, we maintain prayerful, watchful attitudes. We pray. We commune with the Father. We watch. We understand that we live in a fallen world that pulls at our fallen hearts. We read the truth of God's Word, so we understand. But so often we wind up in these situations where we've come to these terrible failures, and we say, I have no idea how I even got here. And usually it winds up 7 or 12 steps back when we forgot to prepare in the first place. Let's not be a people who overestimate our own spiritual strength or who underestimate our own weaknesses. Like Peter, we are capable of denying the very Messiah who has bought us with his blood. Second, we need to consider sorrow and repentance because sometimes they feel similar. Judas felt sorrow and so did Peter, but only one of them experienced repentance, change, a turn in direction. 
there are times when we all feel bad because of what we've done. There are times when there is a worldly sorrow that comes because of guilt. A worldly sorrow that comes because we recognize that something didn't turn out the way we had hoped. A worldly sorrow that comes even because we recognize that we did wrong. Maybe we hate the consequences. A sorrow that comes because of the punishment that we know is coming. That's not the same as repentance. Now, when we recognize our great sin before a holy God, there should be sorrow. Sorrow is an appropriate response to sin, but not because of consequence. A sorrow knowing that we have failed the God who made us. But for the believer, the right response doesn't end in sorrow. It moves toward repentance. It moves toward change, not on our own strength, but because of the God who has changed us. We need to evaluate very, very carefully whether we are a people who are sorrowful over sin or people who are genuinely repentant over our sin. And finally, in this passage, there's a great warning and comfort. Warning in that simply because you know who Christ is does not mean you're rightly related to him. We have two men both called disciples, both with first-hand knowledge but with very different outcomes. We're about to move through the Lord's Supper, through communion. This is a good time to reflect. To reflect on the fact that Judas could have affirmed every truth about Christ that Peter did. And yet they were related to him very, very differently. Today is a time to evaluate what you actually think of this Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And if you are not in relationship with him, if you have never confessed your sins and repented and turned, if you have never understood that he alone is the reason why you can be made right with the God who created you, then I would encourage you, let communion pass today. Don't partake. Don't confuse it. Deal with that central reality first. But then the second part of that, there is great comfort in knowing that even Peter, for all of his success, for all of his writings, for all of his bold gospel proclamation, walked through failure and God's grace sustained him. Peter did not earn his way back into God's favor. God's favor never left him because he was chosen, called, kept by God. Some of us have failed and failed miserably while claiming the name of Christ. And perhaps there's some of us today who come together and say, well, God works in my life, but he cannot possibly overcome that. That I must bear. For the rest of my life, that will be the blemish, the dark spot, the stain that I just have to atone for on my own. That is a misunderstanding of the gospel. For either Christ has taken all of your sin or he's taken none of it. And that means even that which you barely dare to speak to other people. So confess it. Bring it into the light. And then understand the grace of God that is greater than our sins. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. As we move toward communion, I want to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on those things, to reflect on anything else that you need to, in the middle of your busy week, to take a moment to pray, to confess sin to God, to think through who you need to confess your sin to from a one another capacity, to rejoice in the restoration and the forgiveness that he offers.
uh, the ushers are going to come forward, and uh, during this time, they're going to have baskets. If you didn't get communion elements, they'll have those ready. Uh, go ahead and prepare the bread. Take that little slide off. I know that these aren't the easiest communion elements, uh, but I'll come back up, and I'll lead us through taking the bread together after you've had a couple of moments to pray and reflect. Paul writes to that church in Corinth, the church that was no stranger to spiritual struggle and even failure. And he says, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, we're a people that don't typically like the quiet. We don't get a lot of it in the first place, but Lord, sometimes when it's just us and our thoughts, how quickly the failures begin to pile up. Lord, I pray that we take our sin seriously, that we come to the place where our sin breaks our heart. Not because it means we get in trouble, but Lord, because it means that we failed the God who created us, who called us to be like him, who made us in his image. Lord, every time we're reminded of our great sin, remind us of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, the one whose perfection overcame my weakness, the one whose righteousness clothes my failure, my sin, the one whose death took the sting and the power of death for me. What a remarkable thing to celebrate the body of Christ given for us. Lord, we praise you. How could we respond other than to worship you? Amen. <laughs> 